0: How did Ken respond to that or what happened now? I don't think there was any response. It just, Shell was gone practically at that point. And anyway, I'd hate to say it, but, you know, I think they went in a huff and they thought this will be big news. We've been confronted and we have suffered a bit. And there's one or two other little incidents. There were ugly incidents, but they weren't big incidents, you know. So <clears throat> they said they weren't going back. They thought it would be all over in a fortnight, and they'd be back. And it's not over until today. Now, a very interesting aspect of that is that a company has a license to operate, which is a defined license. You can't just go on forever, never, never. Shell still had the license. It still was in joint partnership with the Nigerian government. And it continued like that for all the years, you know, in between... And all those years has been trying to get back one way or another. One of the first recent political presidents, civilian presidents, Yara Dewey, he died in office. But I thought he was very wise, even though he went on a visit to South Africa. He turned around and said, Shell, it's up to you to negotiate your way back into Agone. And you haven't been able to do it for so many years. So I'm just calling an end to your license, because it ran out five years ago and we let it flow but no you don't have a license to go back anymore and i think that's a bit that's underplayed a lot you know it isn't talked about like this was 15 years onwards and there was no movement forward or backward but to this day shell is still trying to get back by you know social means or devious means or political means or whatever its only way of success is to split the community and the loss, the politicians who was a, a certain and there would always be losses because in every community I experienced it up in Arras, I experienced in Leitrim. There's the entrepreneurs in the community. They're very quite short sighted. wouldn't be very idealistic, probably very good at their job, but their job is to make profit. And there's those in every community and every community needs them at some level. And then there's the political class who will balance what's the gain, what's the loss. And then there are the people who are very scared that if activism comes onto our step or in trouble. And then there's people deliberately planted by the company. God forgive companies for what they do to communities. And it's the same story, whether it's Eris, whether it's Leitrim, whether it's LIGO, the people threatened by fracking now, it's exactly the same story. And the same psychological warfare has been got ready for them. I suppose until it becomes very globally enormous will there be any shift. Now, there are indigenous communities in Africa and Latin America and Asia. And because they're indigenous, these were ethnic groups in existence as totalities before colonialism split them all up. But somehow they've never lost their notion of being ethnic Unities. And they've gone to the UN and they have had quite some success in getting themselves recognised as a particular category of community, of nationality, of minority. And there are now, you know, declarations and documents that relate to their needs. And if I look at any of these local situations, and in fact, Ogoni is kept safe by being an indigenous community, but here, in Europe and Ireland, you don't. There's no definition of indigenous that will cover communities who are struggling. So after Biaran, that incident, mm. what happened to Ken next? My first visit, I think, remember, I was 500 kilometres away. The university where I was teaching was on strike again, and Father Dokono Yashola's Dominican priest, who worked in justice as well. Uh, very committed and very able. He was teaching international relations in another university about 100 miles away. I contacted him and asked him would he like to accompany me to Ogoni because I needed somebody who talked the same language as I talked to be a support. So I think we took 10 days off. We travelled over, but we went through parts of the Niger Delta quite different to Ogoni. We went to Wari, where our sisters were, It's in the Niger Delta. And we talked to people there. And then eventually we went over and arrived at the office of Sarawiwa. There was nobody around at all and it was most disappointing. Why? They were all at the funeral of the young man who had been shot by Shell. And I was always sorry because Dokun really supported me on other occasions and he never had the privilege of meeting Ken Sarrawewa and I felt really bad about that because he was very interested in the issue and went on to do a lot of work on environmental rights within his department. So that was my first visit and that was Saturday. We stayed with the Daughters of Charity from Ireland so we pulled a blank totally in Ken's office in Port Harcourt on the Saturday. On the Sunday, we didn't know what to do with ourselves. We drove back to the office, office completely locked. And I had no other means of contacting because I didn't know Port Arquid very well. So we went back to the house again and we asked, would anybody bring us out to Biara? Somebody told us how to get there. So we drove out and there was a community meeting in Biara just coming to a close. And they were so delighted to see us. You know, We just came to say we were sorry that we were interested in the case. I suppose just a bit of familiarity, uh, but going to a place like that, it's very rural. Unless you have a guide with you, you'd have very little idea where to look for the presence of an oil company, with the exception of the oil flares. Because the oil flares, the minute you left Port Harcourt, they were everywhere at night. For as far as the eye could see, you saw oil flares. Whether they were in a, they were no longer in goni, well, they did continue for a while because a lot of oil through pipelines can be brought from other than Agoni. There would have been pipes dealing with Agoni wells. There would have been pipes dealing with wells out over the boundaries of Ogoni and that oil would be flowing through Agoni to the terminal. So that didn't stop for a very long time and maybe still hasn't stopped because that can be manipulated by machinery and computer and all of that i got to know where the daughters charity were where their compound a lovely beautiful compound was it might have been my first time going to ken's office in port harcourt and where we draw a blank and he mightn't have known we were coming either because i would always have kept a little bit independent uh, sometimes maybe there's the mistaken idea that you know when i use the word friend i, I, I was just a fellow activist as i am with uh, these people you know so he'd know very little about me as a person and I would know very little about him as a person other than he was a very public figure and you got to know. So the information you would have would always be in relation to the campaign and if that impinged on the personal here and there, well you took that on board, but it never became the focus of your attention. So tell me then after Biara was kind arrested after that or why See, I'd, did that I'd have come to back? look I'd have to look at all of that. I think I might have let him get on with his business because I would have been teaching and possibly doing exams and correcting. So again I'd be back to the newspapers, the occasional visit to his office But remember, I was following my mandate. I wasn't a member of Mossop. I wasn't a member of the campaign. So I was keeping my eye on what was of interest to me in the campaign for my work. And I wouldn't have known them very well. Remember, it's 500 kilometers Mm. away. I would have gone into the office occasionally. I would have read about another arrest, about this, about that and the other thing. And I would have got on with my work. I would have thought that I was working at that stage quite hard. So it wasn't until August of that year that I became involved again. I probably would have been following the situation in the media because I don't think Ken was coming to his office that often at that time. I don't know. Remember, I was after my mandate again. But I was utterly, utterly shocked to read in the newspapers towards the middle of August that villages were destroyed in Agone. It was about the 5th and 6th of August, the Agoni village of Ka, which was down on the waterside. During the night, unidentified people came in across the water from a neighbouring ethnic group, demolished the market, destroyed the boats, killed the animals and there were deaths. And even to this day, nobody knows how many people died and so began a whole chain of a destruction of villages during the night and it was put out that these villages were being destroyed by unhappy neighbors and aggressive border neighbours and yet the Ogoni were totally puzzled themselves because they couldn't figure out what the row was about because you would have had that interfeuding between ethnic groups at the border every now and again but there hadn't been any of significance for years before so I was reading about that and I went down I think in September there were more villages so I went down and I found Ken in his office one morning and I I remember the huge dilemma for me I'd been following my mandate, which was I was gathering material to send to Brussels about the impact of a multinational, yet I was now faced with a whole chain of destroyed villages, not knowing really where the source of that destruction was. it across border? Was it instigated violence by the state, by the company, or by both together? And then was I just to fold my hands and say, well, when you've sorted out this humanitarian disaster, I'll come back to you and resume my advocacy. Because now I was into a critical humanitarian situation. So I went to Ogoni again. And I, he, he never put the slightest pressure. I said, what do I do now? Shrugged his shoulders, I guess, because he was very distressed. So I said, would it help if I went back to Ogoni? And he said, maybe. And I said, but who would I, I see? Because I knew nobody over there. And so you can go to my brother who's a doctor and he would explain the situation and show you. I went to the airport the next morning and got a local flight to Port Harcourt. It takes about an hour. I got a taxi after much haggling as you do with taxis. And it was about 40 kilometres to the town in Ogoni where Owens, Iwiwa, had his clinic and it was mid-afternoon, maybe three o'clock, and the road was utterly, utterly empty and quiet. So I said to the taxi driver, should this road be like this? And he said no. And I just had the presence of mind to make a quick decision, and I said, turn round. and back and went back to Ken's office, and the people up there were, plenty of them there, in a really distressed state. And Ken now was in Lagos, and I was with the people there. So one of them, good luck, Digbo, said we don't know what's happening in the village, or the villages of Ogoni, but if you wait until tomorrow, we will take you ourselves. So they went to the Daughters of Charity, and I got a bed. Those sisters, were it's the headquarters of the Institute, which is of Irish origin, and there were Irish sisters there. And I always got such a good welcome there, and they must have been terrified having me under their roof. Because I was talking to Mossop, I wasn't talking to the bishop. Not deliberately, i wasn't talking to anybody else, but the, the road had led me to the movement and it was with the movement I kept talking. So they took me the next morning and that was very, very traumatic because we were taken to a village where the refugees from another village had just fled. And it also taught me a lot about how peoples in Africa look after each other, like in refugee situations. They're often married to people from the next village, so they're on from one village to the next. Luckily, one of the daughters of charity came with me. That was a brilliant idea. Good luck, Digbo said, sister, but wouldn't you like to come with us? And that has had such repercussions later on. She came, she was the regional Superior, happened to be visiting. Everybody else was out at work at 12 o'clock in the day, but she was in the house. And she, without any peg, is her name, she came without any difficulty and stayed very calmly with me the whole day. And the next thing, Owens, whom I'd never met before, drove in, in tears, sobbing like a child, that he had just come from another village that had been destroyed, and there was nothing that he could do about it. When they brought me from Port Harcourt, they also brought a fellow with the video because that was Ken's thing and it's the heiress thing the video camera goes everywhere so the Aspian wanted me badly to go to the village but I was afraid of being too traumatized that I wouldn't be able to cope so I said no I'll not go but whoever's with me can go but I'm going back to back to the Daughters of Charity and then that started a whole (coughs) phase because the villages that was August September October November December January then came and they wanted to celebrate Goni Day again on the 4th of January. So a journalist from Austria had asked to go over. Dokan wanted to go over again. I had the money to pay for the flights because people had given me money, you know, to help, but not much, but it was enough to get flights rather than go by road. And I remember going to the airport with them on the 4th of January, about 9 o'clock in the morning, and I said, excuse me, and I went out to buy the paper. And it was that Ken was under house arrest. Owens and the others had been in detention for the previous couple of days, and the march couldn't go ahead. So I came back, praying to God that the two people would decide it was not wise to go ahead, and both of them said, we still want to go. So in fear and trembling, we got on the flight. We reached there. There was another person very involved who was not a is Professor Claude Ake. He was to die later in an air crash. He had an office and the Austrian lady wanted to interview him too. So we instead we went to his office and he welcomed the three of us and then he was getting ready to do an interview with the journalist. And I just whispered to him, is there any way that I can go down to Ken's house? And he went out the back door. And I couldn't bring Dokkan again because I was afraid to bring anybody with me. So I got into the car and like in three minutes I was down outside the gate. And Ken had a little nephew. But he was always in the car and around about. And he saw me and he ran into the house and got Ken down. And Ken came to the gate and I went to the gate and the skewering forces were all around. Like, I just don't know where a body gets the, the courage to do that. And I kind of... He explained the situation to me, that he was under house arrest. I had been thinking, I wonder what will he ask me to do, because that was always the danger. And he said, we'll go to Bori, which is the mid-big town in Ogoni, which is about 40 kilometres from Port Harcourt. So the three of us went there, but the poor people, they were just like, they were hiding and not out, terrified out of their wits. So Ogoni Day that day was completely... Not honoured. They couldn't do it. But then, when that was over, Ken was let out again... ...and Owens was let out of his detention. The negotiations kind of began again. And that was January. Then I got into kind of humanitarian work... ...got in touch with Trocra... ...got in touch with Irish Aid... ...got in touch with the Irish Embassy in Lagos... ...got... Ken invited the St Patrick's Day due on the 17th of March in order that he would meet the ambassador who would use his good graces to talk to the British ambassador, maybe through the British ambassador to Shell and all of that, tried to get that going. So that would have brought us up to March. And the Daughters of Charity turned out brilliantly. They began to run clinics again around the damaged villages. But there were six more villages on Easter Sunday of that year destroyed again on the northern boundaries. So it was like there was a circle of fires around Ogone. And thousands of people... Well, let me say hundreds of people died. To this day, nobody knows who they were, where they're buried. It was uh, unacknowledged. And I I think that was the desperate thing. There was nobody to speak for them. A bit like our own situation. Like there was no Red Cross. There was no ambulances. There was no famine relief. There was no nothing. The trochera came in. I then lynn who introduced me to ken was still my friend on the campus so she was a strong catholic and she went to the chaplaincy and said we've got to collect some foodstuffs for agoni and try to help them and they did that and it was just pathetic because you know they had to bring them by road 500 kilometers and of course there were military checkpoints everywhere so what arrived at the end god only knows very little And along that way, an Irish woman who was a nun once upon a time, Dolores, she'd married a Yoruba man, become a widow, and she was working in the finance sector of the European Commission in Lagos. So she brought me a pile of literature one day and she says, from listening to you talking, I think you should apply for aid for that agony." She said there's a new procotal in the European Commission for Emergency Humanitarian Aid horrendous because here you were with all these forms and i don't know the length of a lorry or the weight of a plank of wood, and the people who would might know were busy doing actual medical work i worked a lot with Owens that time i filled in the forms and after a year i think it didn't come through or <coughs> anyway i was at home when it worked but also you learn that that in order to access this fund in the european commission you had to get a european partner who then had to get a local nigerian partner to disperse the money but to give fair dues to trokra whom i had never you know i didn't know any of this i was a teacher trokra came on board at that time and were wonderful right through they then got in touch with the diocese of port harcourt which wouldn't particularly like magella because magella had brought real agitation into the diocese and the diocese is bigger than Agone and they would have been terrified as well and then the diocese asked the Daughters of Charity to be the partner on the ground but I was kept out of that completely because I was really understood to be a Mossop sympathiser which I actually wasn't I was I was an AFGN person who met unusual circumstances along the way so all of that period In April of that year, you had the last six villages being flattened. And that's spoken about, actually, in Ken's final statement, because the nun who was doing the relief runs wrote to me about that. And I quoted her back to Ken in the letters. And he used that, and that has been used many places since but they didn't, you wouldn't know where it came from, you know, but it was from that nun. In, in Tim, the Hunts book, it wasn't I released that material. It must have been Ken who said it in his final statement, which he is now quoting. So that brought us up to April. So then comes May political world is at work again they want sovereign conference they want to try to sort out these ethnic nationalities and their rights and the military government and the political government of the day all along did not want that because that was going to mean big losses for them at their levels of governance but Sarawiwa was saying this is a great opportunity for our ethnic minorities to get a hearing at the central table so he was very pro that And it was in trying to activate the Ogonis to select representatives to send to the Sovereign Conference that the chiefs were murdered and he was arrested. And then that was his final detention. But I want to say there, because it connects to what happened to me later, when you read his final statement, which is just as detailed as a month and a day, it's a very useful document, he points to a memo that was prepared by the military in Ogoni There were two levels of military. One was a kind of just invited military, a kind of unofficially in to help. And it's suspected that it was from those ranks, that those agitators that destroyed the villages. Because it's accepted that destruction was so properly planned and thorough that only uh, people with military experience could do it. But then Ken ironically went to the military government again and asked for proper troops to come in to protect the Ogoni. So they did, but then they formed the Internal Security Task Force, which were horrendous people. The destruction was pretty awful. There was a military leader in River State. There had been a, a civilian for a while, and then it went back to military. And then the head of this Internal Security Force was a military man as well. And he was pretty ferocious. And he kind of seems to say in a document that the plan was to carry out wasting operations across communities, taking out anybody that was vocal. So, in fact, it was a destabilizer. you know, that you could kill anybody. But it was to be in a way that wasn't very obvious. So you can conclude that, a oh, host. so you had a plan for destroying the villages. Now you have a plan for killing Sarawiwa. You kill four of his kinsmen in a murder that's then put on his head so that bit in his final statement seems to show that and just to connect with that later on when i came back to ireland and we would have been campaigning for his life for over a year but that became pain began with the leaking of that military document to Glen ellis and k bishop they got it the guardian in the uk got it and then I got it. Then I brought it to the Irish public attention through the Irish Times and then that began the Irish campaign. Well, I would think that concern about Agoni, and the agitation in Agoni, and the work of Mossop was of serious concern to Shell and to the Nigerian state government at the time. And now the military were fully in control of Agoni, and they actually sent away any policeman Born in Ogoni, the police were completely excluded from activity that went on from there. The country had reached a point again where they thought a national sovereign conference would have been of benefit to the whole ethnic minorities and even majorities in Nigeria. So it was planned for a particular period of time all the groups concerned were asked to elect representatives to represent the needs at that conference. So on the day that Ken was arrested, there were many people in Ogoni out canvassing for particular people to represent them. And Ken had been in a village when he was turned back and not allowed to speak. And on the way back... He was stopped by the the military. And I think he agreed to that and obeyed that and went back to his office in Port Harcourt. And it was very late that night when he heard that four chiefs had been murdered in the area to which he had been heading, but which to have coffee with his deputy, Mossa person. So they just came and arrested him. With many, many other Ogonis. Remember, there were nine Ogonis hanged. And there were many more in prison for many more years afterwards. The accusation was that these people were responsible for the murders of the four chiefs. Now, these were four political chiefs. So there was that already kind of certain gap between Mossop and the political representatives. That was one thing. Number two, there was the military strategy to say, which I would interpret, kill anybody that will cause. Select those whose deaths will cause the greatest disruption. And if they can be important enough to be killed, that we can blame Sarawiwa for it, all the better. Now remember that Shell and the state would have been in agreement more or less with those plans in the mind of Sarawiwa. So Ken was detained and you were writing to him still at that point, were you? Well, maybe that's when the correspondence really started. The first letter in the collection is actually about the offer to get funding from the European Commission and the European Commission deciding on Trocra handling it and Trocra deciding on the Diocese of Port Harcourt and the Daughters of Charity. Now, they were all outsiders to Mossop. They were a totally different set of institutions. It was the Agoni people in Mossop that were suffering, so I felt I had to ask his advice. Through whom I had got to know the Agoni situation, how would it feel if I now made active this procedure, which meant that Mossop would have no say in it at all and would be carried out independent of Mossop, and would be done on the ground by Catholic Church personnel, even if the hired people, it would be they. And that first letter is back to say what a relief that would be. We have too many things to attend to. So uh, this is just an aside, but that's why I feel that the letters almost deserve a commentary almost because there's such issues in them now that I've gone through them so many times this last year because that's a big issue. He wasn't interested in aid at all. He was interested in financial assistance for the campaign even when the people were suffering greatly. The campaign was very important to him. And where was Ken in detention at this stage, just that he was under military detention in Fort Harcourt? Yeah, well, what they did, I mean, it's Ken kind of, Owens would know more about this than I did. <coughs> they were very careful never to put him in prison. He was never in prison until the morning he was hanged. Because I told you the police were excluded from all this activity. So the military actually arrested him and they would have brought him to the military barracks. They would have kept him in the detention centre there. They then would have brought him maybe to a house which they'd commandeered for that, where facilities were reasonably good. So, some of the time he'd have been in reasonable conditions in a kind of a normal house that they had put aside, still incommunicado largely, and still without medical assistance. And yeah, they protected or detained him very thoroughly. But then he would be brought and threatened and that. Now, the detail of that I wouldn't know, but the real fact is that he was never in prison custody, except for the month and a day when he was in custody in the place in Port, not in Port Harcourt, no worry. So he never was in prison. So the morning that they hanged those people, They went to the detention centres, brought them into prison. I don't know if the others were in prison or not, but I don't think so. They were all brought, at least he was brought, to the prison so that it would be statutorily correct that the hanging would take place where hanging should take place in the prison. How long was he in detention before he was hanged and what was going on then back here with you around trying to campaign to have him released? Yeah, well, he would have been... Placed in detention that night, the 21st of May, 1994. 21st of May, 1995, a year had passed. And from May until November, May, June, July, August, September. So 17 months, I think. So overall, I would have counted it. The campaign lasted from the 4th of January of ninety-three to the 10th of November, 1995. So I think it's just less than three years for his lifespan. Mossop is still alive. Mossop is still working 18 years later. (coughs) But for that period, that was the length of time. In fact, I was looking at them recently, and I reckon this started about two months after he was placed in detention. Well, 21st of May, June passed. July, the correspondence started. And then the correspondence lasted until a month before the executions. And what would you write to each other about? Well, to do with the campaign generally. I tended, because he was an immediate responder, that motivated you to write. So I think I would have continued to give a kind of a summary of what the media was saying, summary of my experience with the activists, what I was doing, then up to the point of where I was leaving Nigeria, because that correspondence in Nigeria would have been quite short. July and August, and then I had to tell him that in August I was going home. Why did you decide to go home? I don't know. I was quite exhausted from the whole thing. I had a feeling that I wouldn't be allowed to go on with the campaign. My contract with the university was up those months, but I got a renewal of three years, because it was in a three-year phase. So I had to say no. I just had the feeling it was time to go. A lot of people would be very frightened for me, but I never experienced that fear, so nothing to do with that. I just felt I wouldn't be able to operate anymore, that I'd done as much as I could, and that I had done 30 years, and that I couldn't possibly... I think I explained before how I'd been doing my doctorate, and I had got up to submitting to the external examiner, and I got the remarks back a year later from UCD, and... The demands to sit down to do corrections in that milieu I couldn't take it on and never did take it on because it was just too immense to do both things together so I just left it at that point I wouldn't be sure I knew I was due a sabbatical now not an academic sabbatical because I could have got that as well but I didn't ask for that I just felt I had done 30 years I think I kind of fulfilled the mandate of a a support campaigner in that you keep yourself quite objective, you help as far as you can, you almost know when it's time for you to move and do no more unless you're asked. So I couldn't see, I wasn't living in agony. the agonies were scattered in all directions, huge punishments had come. If anybody could do anything for the people, just the Daughters of Charity, and they were doing it. But I wouldn't have thought it out as neatly as all of that, but just I had a sense the time had come. So I asked for a sabbatical from my institute, not from the university. Didn't renew my contract with them. Came home to be on sabbatical, which was willingly given to me. I'd say very relieved to give it to me, get me out of the way. And then I had a problem again because... I figured after I was home for about two or three weeks I came home in August and I was very interested in the conflict situation in the north I'd always wanted to give some help to that and I'd wanted my sabbatical to be for that and then I said well this is where a missionary is a missionary again do I leave the people behind me waiting death and I never open my mouth again about them. So I went to Troker again to thank them and I've been thirty years out of the country, so it's unbelievable. The un level of unfamiliarity I had with everything is hard to describe that to anybody who hasn't gone through it. Where to get the bus, what bus went what direction. Like it took me weeks to discover that it was the eighty-three or something went out past or the eighty-four that went out past Throcra. So I had been when I came home, they were busy on the humanitarian side of it. I went to thank them. I went to keep an eye on how it was going, met Mary Sweeney, who was extremely supportive. Niall Tobin, late, was also, they were wonderful to me. And they got on with their business with the Daughters of Charity and the diocese. And then I happened to say one day, not knowing anything about campaign work in Ireland, there was a, a guy in charge of development education called Colm O'Regan. And I said, Colm, do you ever do advocacy? I don't know where I learned the word. I must have learned it from my Gen. And he said, but should we do it here too? And I said, it would be a great help to me if I could use the one bus that I now have learned to come and pursue advocacy on behalf of the Ogoni. And He said, why not? So suddenly they were giving me the use of the telephone. They were giving me a small, tiny subsistence for my bus fare. And they began to row in behind me from an advocacy point of view. And I said to myself, well, I might as well learn how to do advocacy properly. As a kind of an intern, even though I never used the word, here's Troker willing to show me the ropes, ready to be engaged in a real situation for me. So my year sabbatical will go to that. So that's what happened.